Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Hello and welcome to a very informative podcast with Dr. Margaret Carno. Uh, Dr. Margaret Carno is Professor of Clinical Nursing and Pediatrics at the University of Rochester School of Nursing in Rochester, New York. Welcome. Thank you so much, Leanne. We're so pleased to have you here today. This looks like a really interesting topic and one that I think a lot of us uh, need to learn more about, including myself. So I'm very intrigued. Today, we're talking about moral distress. Um, What is moral distress? Moral distress has actually been defined a number of different ways when you look in the literature. But really what it comes down to is there is a situation where a healthcare provider, we normally think of it as nursing or, or medicine. However, mm-hmm. social work, pharmacists, um, even our veterinarian colleagues mm-hmm. suffer from moral distress. And what it is, is that internal feeling of wanting to do something that you feel is correct or the more the ethical thing to do. And for some reason, you are unable to do that. And so that's basically, there's like 10 different de- uh, definitions. That's basically the summary of, and the kernel in each definition. Okay, that's that's really interesting. I think a lot of us in nursing have had uh, situations with this on at varying varying degrees, right? Um, yes. Uh, I'm assuming that there are a variety of uh, different concepts related to this, or yes, yes. So there is um, the concepts of the distress itself. Mm. Does it, is it a physical distress? Is it a psychological distress? There are the concepts related to um, the moral agency. Like, do you feel the moral or ethical dilemma itself? That is really important. There needs to be a reason why the provider or healthcare personnel cannot act in the way they want to. And there's a number of reasons for that. It can be internal. It could be external. Um, And when I talk about external, I mean, it could be institution-wide systems that are preventing the person Um, from acting in a way they feel is ethical. It could be family related. Hmm. So they feel that the classic example um, in critical care is the family that wants to do everything and the healthcare providers and the bedside nurse feel that this is futile. Right. And so those are some of the different concepts that 
surround um, moral distress. And we need to remember that not every ethical situation brings moral distress, even if the person cannot act in the way they think it is um, ethical. There really needs to be kind of a threshold within the person. Oh, okay. And individual to each person, I would assume. Yes, yes. And how individuals react is um, really intrinsic to what they hold within themselves as the moral distress. For example, you might see um, a situation in critical care and be very upset about it. Family mm -hmm. wants everything done. You're really upset. I might take care of the patient and say, yes, this is wrong. However, by doing these little things, the family themselves are getting comfort. So it's how we look at the situations oh, that okay. makes that's, it important too. That's a great example. That's a really good example. Can, from your perspective, can moral distress develop over time? If you're, for yes. example, if you're exposed to that scenario a number of times, eventually it becomes one that you're less comfortable with. Does that sound reasonable? That is correct. In the, okay. the first time, it's. Um, you know, you might be able to say, yep, this is fine. But then the second time you're like, well, why aren't the healthcare providers really explaining this more to the family? And then that keeps can keep building and building. And it doesn't have to be the same scenario. It can be different scenarios within the practice of the nurse that increases the moral distress that physiologic and psychological feelings that they are experiencing. For example, you could go in one day and you're providing care that you think is futile. Mm -hmm. The next day you could go in and the family is asking you a ton of questions on their loved one who's had a transplant that they didn't understand a solid organ transplant really is one chronic illness for another chronic illness. Right. You could go in the third day and be short-staffed and running around and then get distressed that you cannot provide the care that you feel needs to be. You do just the basics. So you get you get the meds done, you get the suctioning done, you get the dressing changes done, but you don't do those little things. So that moral distress can build over time. And as you see, there's different situations. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, that nurse might be experiencing um, accumulation of these small little levels of moral distress into a bigger level. Interesting. Um, I would think that religion, religious practices or beliefs of either the patient or the caregiver could get in the way of this too, maybe, or help to create this at times? Um, sometimes, and sometimes actually a faith can help the nurse decrease the moral distress. 
they can oh. rely on their faith to help them release whatever moral distress they're feeling. Other times, in other situations, it may. And then as nurses, we have the obligation um, to care for all of our patients. But if it's really that distressful, we should go to our leaders and ask um, to be reassigned. Yes. If they feel that um, non-heart beating organ donation, for example. Right. Some, some religious faiths, some people might feel that that is wrong. Then you go to your nurse manager, your nurse leader, and ask for a change in assignment. So it can cut multiple ways. It's not always a cause of the distress. In some ways, it can be actually a comfort and help decrease the stress. Oh, that's that's good to know. Yeah. And I love what you're saying about asking for someone else to uh, take on the care of that patient. Certainly, um, you know, we've all seen circumstances or been in them when it's been really difficult to look after someone or have someone, one of our coworkers have trouble looking after someone. Um, I remember in particular, just briefly, one where uh, we had a criminal who was in and he had uh, committed a really horrible crime against his family. And there were several people uh, that did not want to look after him. Um, and it was it was a really tough situation mm-hmm. for everyone. Um, but it was, uh, you know, you have to look back on that pledge, right? Uh, mm-hmm. On what we uh, mm-hmm. what we agreed to do when we when we started the profession. But, it, you know, for some, it's just, I hear you, you know, you need to find someone that's willing to do it. And the other thing, too, is we can use our peers and our colleagues to help us decrease our moral t- distress or help us reframe it okay. in a way that may help us, I don't want to say diminish, but oh. help us to understand the situation. Right. And sometimes just talking to a peer can really help someone see a different light. And so in some places where there have been an issue or a concern that's been very distressing for the unit, they'll actually bring somebody in, whether it's from their ethics Mm. team, um, a counselor, uh, an experienced nurse, a psychiatric nurse practitioner, to really help the unit talk about what's going on and help them process it. That is one way that they can help with moral distress. Very good. I'm just curious, uh, before we dig in a little bit further on this, how did your work start on this topic? It's very intriguing. Um, my background's in pediatric critical care, and I've always loved the ethical portion of it and how sometimes regulations and ethics conflict a little bit at times. Yes, it's true. And so, and that's how I've really got into this um, area. I think in, in pediatrics, I don't want to diminish to all my adult colleagues, but I think sometimes <laughs> in pediatrics, we get into some dilemmas that 
you don't necessarily see in the adult world. Sure. Can you give us an example? Um, Sure. The classic example is certain religions do not approve of blood products. Okay. The administration of blood blood products, excuse me. And if you have a child, let's say a four or five-year-old, who has a disease process where they need to receive blood products. The classic one is um, leukemia treatment or or some sort of oncological treatment. Mm -hmm. What do you do ethically? How do you honor the parents' wishes, but uphold the standard of care for the patient? Right. Yeah, that's a big one. And how do you get to do that. Or the flip side of it is I had a a patient once who was 15 and she had gone through multiple rounds of chemo and she was ready to stop. She was just ready. She knew what it meant to stop and her parents weren't there yet. Hmm. And how to help the parents get there. Because she's a minor. Right. But, right. you know, she's at that age where she can say, you know, I don't want this, but the parents are still driving the healthcare decisions. Wow. Yeah, that's tough. So that's yeah. just uh, another example. Wow. Great examples. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, now, how does how does reliance play into moral distress? Um. Reliance and resilience really help the nurse handle their moral distress. And and I think that's one thing that we are seeing more and more is nurses with more resilience Uh are really able to handle what is going on, whether it's short staffing, not enough personal protective devices, the whole thing. But if they are resilient and how they look at their lives and they look at it as, you know what, we will get through this. We just need to figure it out. We will get through this. We've gotten through this before. We can get through this again. And they feel that internal power almost that they can handle this. Those are the nurses that are going to be able to handle their moral distress for um, and come out of the situation not psychologically harmed. Got it. Or they know how to get support that they need. Tapping into those resources. Yes. Whether it's personal within them, as we talked about earlier, faith traditions, or just um, meditation, self-care, you know, just taking time for themselves, maybe even just a hobby where they can go home, they can rest after a long shift, they might have the next day off, and they can take a small portion of that day and help themselves recoup and recover. Excellent. 
Do you feel that this uh, resiliency is an innate quality or do you think people can actually develop that over time with the right exposure to someone like that, for example? I think that they can develop it. And the literature um, really supports that nurses can develop it. We're not taught how to develop it. No. That is one thing that I know schools of nursing are now starting to look at is Good. how to teach how to be resilient, how to make sure you are taking um, care of yourself. Yes, self-care is this big buzzword, but really how to make sure you as an individual are getting your needs met and that you're meeting the needs of your patients. And I think that that is really important. Yes. I'm really happy to hear that they're thinking about uh, putting that in curriculum because it's such an important piece. Wow, that's that's great news. How do you see moral distress manifesting? Like, what's the effect that it has on the caregiver? Um, It can have a wide variety of effects. You know, you can have headaches. You can have stomach aches just feeling that well. But I think the signs and symptoms that are prevalent that we don't see is how someone cares for the patient. Mm. They may, you know, do the, um, I'm going to put it in quotes, tasks. So the meds get done on time, the suctioning, the turning, the, um, dressing changes. However, those little things or the interactions with the fat, the, excuse me, the family is not as deep or as rich as that nurse had done in the past. Mm -hmm. So they're competent in their job, but it's almost like they have developed a wall and have become very task-oriented as opposed to holistically oriented. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And I, and I think that's what we're seeing a lot now in nursing for a wide variety of reasons. You know, let's just, let me just get through the day. Let me just get through the task. Um, let me just not make a mistake. Let, you know, my, I just have to keep them alive keep going for another four hours, let's say. Right. And then I get to go home. Right. This this had to have been exacerbated for a lot of people during COVID. Yes, it was. And it was actually um, interesting. There's some literature that points out that it wasn't just the people that were caring for patients. There were a lot of nurses whom were not working because they worked in an ambulatory clinic and those clinics were closed down. Right. And they were not brought into the hospital. So they felt to moral distress because they felt guilty that they're watching their peers work these horrendous shifts. Some of their peers actually dying. Right. Or, or getting long COVID. And they had the pleasure, luxury, or however you want to word it, of staying home because that is where their position was. 
Right, right. And this is across healthcare. So there's literature that demonstrates social workers, occupational therapists, physical therapists, music therapy. There's a there were a whole lot of people that were home or furloughed and that they could not help out because they didn't have maybe the skills or maybe it was not the opportunity. Right. Wow, that's a completely different angle I hadn't thought about, but you're absolutely yeah. right. Very interesting. Um, what are some ways to combat uh, moral distress? I know you talked about speaking with friends or colleagues, but what are some other ways to do um, that? Making sure you take care of yourself. So getting enough sleep, you know, the basics, good old Maslow, you yes. know, getting enough sleep, eating properly, um, decreasing on the caffeine and the sugar, trying to limit the alcohol, um, and also recognizing that your practice may have changed. You might not be as caring or you're just a little more stressed. And finding different outlets or even therapy. Right. And it might not be a full, you know, long, long therapy, but it just might be a couple of sessions. Um, every employer I know has some sort of employee um, health where there is emotional health um, involved. So, you know, reaching out to that. Um, experiencing gratitude. Oh, I love you know, that. Keep, keeping a gratitude journal. Um, yes. And just being grateful for what you have and also grateful for what you bring to the bedside. You might not change. You might not be able to change the outcome. Right. You might not be able to every, you know, like at the beginning of COVID, not everybody had appropriate PPE. Mm-hmm. But there are those little things that you can bring to the family, to the patient, even if it's just holding the hand or just, you know, a pat on the shoulder. Just those little things to maintain that human connection. Beautiful. I think those are some ways. And Perfect. If, um, and just one other thing would be is see what you're, if you're, wherever your healthcare agency does is see if they can have somebody, especially if it's been a very stressful time in the unit, as I talked about before, seeing if the hospital can bring in somebody to talk to the group overall. Right. Oh yeah. Excellent. I love that. Um, I, so this can, I'm, I'm assuming you correct me if I'm wrong. I'm thinking this can really contribute to burnout. Yes. Yes, there um, is literature that demonstrates the higher the moral distress and how long it lasts mm. contributes to burnout. Um, and some nurses leave the profession. Some nurses stay because they can't leave. But as I said, they put up that wall. Right. Um, and it's not that they're not caring. I don't want to imply that, but they're able to 
make sure that the care is adequate, mm-hmm. but those small little things may be um, missing. Sure. Right. Um, demographics. I'm just curious. I'm again, I'm making assumptions and I love that you're here to uh, straighten me out because um, (laughs) when it comes to demographics, my assumption is that it's people who've been in the profession for a while and have had repeated exposure to scenarios like this, but is, can this be something that happens for a new grad, for example? It could. Okay. Um, Depending upon where the new grad's working and a People have the assumption also that we see moral distress really just in the ED or the ICU and in urban areas. That's not true. Actually, there was one study I read where the nurses that had the highest level of moral distress worked Uh in telemetry. Really? Because they didn't have all the resources and weren't part of the team like the ICU or the ED nurses were. Wow. I mean, you know, when you're working in the ED or you're working in the ICU, you're usually part of a team and you know what's going on. Where if sometimes when you work telemetry, people just round and you don't know what's going on. The other thing is that it can happen in rural areas huh and it can it can happen in primary care interesting Um, so you know moral distress burnout all these really related concepts happen across the nursing profession no matter what how long they've been a nurse and no matter where they work we hope you've enjoyed part one of our podcast on moral distress In part two, Dr. Carno will delve further into this interesting topic by exploring more real-world scenarios. We thank you so much for listening. This is Leanna McGuire for Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.